The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Jens Nordvig, who I had on, I think, well over a year ago. And I remember that being a very, very well-attended space, Jens. So for those who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. What's your background? How'd you get involved in interested in markets? And what are you doing currently? Okay. I've been doing this for a little bit. I started my career at Goldman London, then Goldman in New York. And I've been in New York almost 20 years. Then I did Bridgewater Associates, head of unit research in the Morris Securities, and then I launched my first company on my own in 16. That's called Exante Data, where we deal with institutional investors around the world, try to help them take risk, manage risk. And then I have another company that's called Market Reader Inc., where we're building software to explain what's going on in real time. So uh, trying to keep busy. So I want to hit on what you just mentioned, which is try to help institutional investors manage risk. It seems like it's kind of challenging now, given that a lot of these kind of historical correlations aren't behaving as you would expect them to. How do you think people should think about risk in an environment where it seems like every time you get back to maybe the inverse correlation of stocks to bonds, it just doesn't want to kick back up? Yeah, I I think it's actually much easier (laughs) because there are huge macro risks out there. If you can get the macro call right, it's going to make a huge impact on the portfolio. So I think it's much uh, better time to really be focused on macro now than, for example, 2018, 2019, where, you know, you, you were talking about whether GDP crosses were RB2 or 2.2%. That was the extent of the macro debate. Now we talk about whether inflation is going to be five or one. We can have that debate, right? So big macro calls to be had. And uh, yeah, this week is a, a very exciting week, right? Where I think a lot of people are waking up to the reality that China is in serious trouble, right? So if you've had that call right, you'd be prepared for this week. Otherwise, it might be a bit, a bit on the back foot now. All right. So, so let's get into that. And and I've been you know, warning that you know, the conditions are there for credit event. I myself think it probably comes more from BOJ, but everything's ultimately you know, interconnected when it comes to global markets like this. Layer for the audience, what's going on with China this year? Because the narrative at the start of the year was reopening is going to be very bullish for China. And it ended up being the exact opposite. Yeah. So I, I've done, been doing COVID forecasting for three years. We started in January 2020 and we ended it in January 2023 when it was clear that China was coming out of their COVID wave. Right. And then we had a couple of months where the Chinese economy was coming back from being entirely shut down. It was almost like a mechanical thing, right? That everything was super depressed because of the lockdowns and they came out of that 
physical lockdown and there was some activity that bounced. And since then, and we've seen that very clearly in our indicators, uh, we have daily activity indicators from for China that we track around the clock. At the end of March, they started to peak out and things have been going south since then. And then I would say we've reached sort of a new phase over the last few weeks where not only is the reopening momentum slowing, but there's some data indicators that are starting to flash at least orange, maybe red. And at the same time, we have, you know, financial market indicators from the real estate sector looking extremely dire, right? Like we we always tend to compare with what happened in 2008 is worse than 2008. And it's kind of weird benchmark, right? Because that was a full-blown meltdown in credit markets, funding markets, and so forth. And that's not going to be happening in China because China has a controlled financial system. They're not going to like let the banks shut down, right? So it's not going to be like that. But if you compare what's going on in the real estate sector, we essentially have all the big players in the real estate construction industry in serious trouble. And you could argue teetering on, on bankruptcy with Country Garden being the latest one to delay some bond payments, right? So it is a very, very serious situation. And then on top of that, I think last night was a kind of maybe I should say grotesque example, right? We have the central bank cutting rates, surprising some a little bit. And then like literally 10 minutes after, we have the state banks coming in and intervening in the currency, right? So they want to cut rates, but they don't have the currency move. So they have all these conflicting goals and maybe they even have conflicting people that are fighting a little bit internally about what to do. And it generates not very powerful policy response. And it's pretty remarkable, right? Like if you watch the, the ups and downs we've had in the market over the last couple of months, we've had many, many waves of hope. You know, you see a couple of prices try to trade up, Chinese stocks trade up for a couple of days, right? And then the hope kind of fades, right? Because actually the, the stimulus hope was mostly just hope and we didn't really get anything very concrete. That's really been the story of the last three, four months. And we're still waiting for anything concrete. Maybe it will come, right? We just haven't seen it yet. And now markets are starting to respond with the currency, currency breaking out in a way that's been surprising to me. I'm glad you mentioned Evergrande. I, I joked that people forgot about it and they thought it was like a Starbucks drink. But, you know, when Evergrande happened, the, the narrative at the time was this is the, the, the first domino to fall in terms of, you know, an impending real estate crash in China. But your point about a controlled financial system is well taken. What makes what's going on more recently different relative to what happened with Evergrande back then? Yeah. So I think, I think it's very interesting, right? That we have a big real estate company, Evergrande, generating an incredible amount of attention two years ago now. It's two years ago. And I, I can even observe it from my Twitter feed, right? Like I think when I wrote about Evergrande two years ago on my Jay Nordvig handle on Twitter, it's probably the single day that I got the most Twitter followers. I got 5,000 followers on that day or something like that because I wrote something borderline intelligent about Evergrande. And now we are two years after. And actually, the bigger real estate companies, Country Garden and so forth, are the ones in trouble. And you can go and look through Wall Street Journal or Financial Times or something like that. Is that a big focus in those papers? No. Like there's not that much focus on it, right? So we have this total meltdown in real estate and it's actually not that getting that much focus. And it is different from 
the global financial crisis or the, the US version of the financial crisis, right? Where the banks were literally shaking themselves, right? So that's not the case in China, but the real estate issue itself is, I would argue, bigger. Like we, the home builders in the US survived. And in, in China's situation here, we, we have the real, really having liquidity issues, having a hard time actually fund their ongoing operations. So it's a very, very serious issue. But the, what is new, what is new now is that it looks to me like we're having a real confidence crisis on the ground, not just around real estate specifically. But if I look at the latest credit data that came out last week, we have various initiatives to to try to boost credit. We've had mortgage lending rules and so forth have been relaxed. And then you look at the numbers and people don't want the credit. So that's kind of like going back to Richard Koo's theories and so forth, who I used to work with at Nomura, right? Balance sheet recession. At some point, you get to a point where actually it doesn't matter what the interest rate is. People just don't want the credit. That's what it looked like in the very latest credit numbers for July. And that's extremely concerning. Then we had another batch of numbers last night, retail sales barely growing, right? When a lot of people thought, okay, we have reopening, retail sales should be strong. So that, but those two data points combined with everything we're seeing in the financial system suggests to me that there's a potentially very serious confidence issue in the economy. I don't think it's a coincidence either that they stopped publishing their youth and unemployment statistics overnight, right? They, 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 they know they have a conference issue, right? They're trying to do kind of desperate things to avoid that, that conference problem being even bigger. But that's really what looks new to me. We haven't seen that before to the same degree. Yeah. And, and that, that removal of the reporting of youth unemployment, I think is interesting. How connected is youth unemployment to housing or construction in China? I think there's a broader, it's a broader issue, right? That we've had. Chinese economy is slowing on a multi-year scale. And then you have certain sectors that obviously had been observing certain types of new entrants to the labor market, right? But I think it's much broader than that. The economy is just weak on a, on a broad basis. They continue to rely on, on exports, which are now peaking out as well. So uh, this is a, a totally different regime for the Chinese economy than they've been living through from, you know, the early 2000s until a couple of years ago. And in a way, it's no surprise, like no economy can grow, you know, 7% real for many years in a row, right? And eventually there's a reckoning. And that reckoning is now in China. And uh, yeah, credit numbers, I think, is if you're going to pick one data point that sort of crystallizes that, that you can't uh, get people to take credit, even with low rates, that's very telling of what situation we're actually in. How much of that confidence crisis do you think is just sort of you know, a, a demoralized population after so many years of, you know, this kind of brutal lockdown. I, I, it, it seems like it's almost just now it's somewhat in the blood, right? The way that people are responding to, in China, to economic activity after just years of suffering. Yeah, I think that there's probably, there's probably a lot of that. Also, don't forget, right, that a lot of Chinese households have almost all their net worth in the form of real estate, right? Financial investments are not a big part of the portfolio. By the way, if you had any financial investments in Chinese stocks, you would have done it extremely poorly, right? You essentially had no return on a multi-decade basis. But real estate has turned, right? It's very hard to sell real estate, right? So either you have an asset that's going down, you have an asset that, that is illiquid and 
lots of lots of families will own more than one property. And we've had an incredible amount of overbuilding, right? And now the government has been now so for more than two years trying to do something to revive that market, right? But with that overhang of excess capacity, that just is no easy solution. So I think I think as you refer to, okay, the COVID lockdown certainly had an impact on the psychology. It was very traumatic for a lot of families, right? But there's also a wealth effect and concern about the future and the rising prices, positive sentiment around real estate was a good thing until it turned. And now it's a dramatic negative and something that makes people very worried about the future. We don't have a lot of social security in in China, right? So whatever assets you had typically in real estate was your pension or your social security, right? So if that's in question, your future is very, very uncertain overall. There's been you know, talk for a while. It's kind of gone in and out around this idea that China is going to go to the way of Japan, right? Kind of the Japanification of China. Is there any way out of of this broader malaise? I mean, if, if yeah, the, the natural response is, okay, so they just stimulate. Okay, but the problem is there's so much debt that it, it seems like you're almost at the, the same juncture as Japan in you know, 1989. Yeah. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. So we, we, we at Exante Data, right, my team, we try to track all the little bits and pieces of the stimulus that have been announced. And we have a big table with all the steps they've taken over the last few months, right? And there's a lot of them, but they're all kind of like small. And it's not obvious, even if you add them all up, that there's like we've kind of reached a tipping point where it's really going to make a big difference, especially if you have this conference crisis that is sort of beyond normal, cyclical, looks like a kind of more structural shift in confidence. So that's a real challenge. So what what could they really do that will be different, right? So I think there's a debate starting in China about a different type of stimulus, a type of stimulus that would not be the the one they have been pursuing for the last two, three decades, which has been based on infrastructure, sort of heavy industry exports. And instead, it'll be based on, okay, let's, let's stimulate the consumer. Chinese savings rates are extremely high, world record high, right? And it goes back to the point I made about lack of social security, right? There's a a lot of precautionary saving, right? Because we, it does, it's not a, it's not sort of perceived that there's going to be any backing for you from the government when you get old and so forth. So if there was a more aggressive effort to, to really put money in the pocket of the consumer in the household, that could potentially make a big, big difference. I'll go back to the reopening dynamic we've seen, right? The Chinese reopening dynamic has followed a very, very different trajectory than all other major economies, like certainly the US, certainly the European economies, Australia, Canada, and so forth, and, and even Korea and Japan as well within Asia, in that 
We had a mechanical reopening. Okay, people went to the restaurant when the restaurant opened. They took the subway again, but there was not a big transfer taking place during the lockdown to stimulate the economy. And therefore, coming out of the lockdown, there was not that big boost to spending that we saw, obviously, in the U.S. and other places. And that's part of the same story. The lack of transfers to household is also what is creating a difference. Now, even in the inflation numbers, right, it's well known that CPI is very low in China, even though they've just come out of reopening process, whereas any other major economy that's experienced the reopening process seems to have kind of spike in prices in the, you know, call it six to 12 months after reopening took place. Not so in China, right? A lot of big differences there. And I think it comes back to the lack of transfers and it comes back to the conference effects that are associated with that, probably combined with what you mentioned earlier, there's sort of a trauma from the lockdowns having been extremely severe as well. Yeah, that's why when you say lack of transfers, my, my mind immediately goes to you know, CBDCs as sort of the, the response and the answer to that. Yeah, so, so obviously China is building technology to, to do very targeted transfers to central bank digital currency. There are test pilot things going on that means that they have the technology in place. So certain people have the wallets and so forth. It's not something that's been used at a country level macro scale yet. What's the what's the risk of you know, as much as China can can you know maybe manage the downside or at least the speed of it, what's the risk to global markets? I, I know that sounds like an obvious question, but I always go back to it's about path, not prediction. So, you know, if if I and right, and I could be very wrong on this idea that, you know, the conditions favor some kind of, you know, credit events, spread blowout, which is what you typically see in recessions in bear markets anyway. Could, do you think it could be from China that starts that? Or is it still too controlled, you know, to be sort of a global systemic risk? Yes, yeah, so I, don't, I don't think it's going to work through the banks in the way we've typically seen in many other crises. So I think it's going to work through the real economy. And we've certainly seen, right, that Asia... Asia is different from the rest of the world, right? Lots of Asian economies, not Japan, but like other South Asian economies have a different monetary policy situation than we have in the US. Like we're not talking about aggressive hikes in many Asian economies. And inflation was never a a big of a problem in, in those economies. So I think the way it would migrate through the system is that we have this Lack of consumption, weak demand, and you know, it migrates to neighboring economies, you know, Korea, Taiwan, and so forth, could have an impact on commodity markets as well. So I think it goes through a more real channel than we would t- typically see in, in the US, on Europe, it typically goes through, okay, the banks are in serious trouble, right? And it goes through the markets through that channel. So from that perspective, I think it's slower. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be a problem over time. And you can see, like, we've been talking about this as we talked, just mentioned, like, Evergrande was two years ago, right? So this is something that's going to be at least a two-year process. If you think about, like, the U.S. situation, like, we had severe tension in the U.S. housing market, like, for a period of time, right? But markets actually bounced pretty aggressively from, call it March 2009, right? So the real severe part of the tension in markets was concentrated over a six to nine month period, right? Whereas here, because the banks are not allowed to fail, it gets drawn out. 
but it doesn't mean that the pain is smaller because it just gets drawn out over a longer time frame. Talk about how uh, currency movement factors into all this, not just relative to the dollar, but you know, I'm thinking more relative to the yen, which I keep going back to, I think is, is going to be a real problem for Asia in general. So uh, let, let me start the, this way, right? So similar to to the banks being controlled by the Chinese government, the currency is, is very controlled by the Chinese government. Historically, it's been tightly, tightly managed, right? And we've had a lot of focus over the years on what is China doing with its currency reserves? Are they buying treasuries? Are they doing other things with them? How are they going to spend them now? But I think China is operating a bit differently after 2017. In the, the mini balance of payments crisis, 2015 to 2016, when we had quick currency weakness, China used its currency reserves aggressively to try to stabilize the currency. But I think they were very surprised how expensive it was. So they essentially spent a trillion dollars intervening in the currency market over that period of time. And it had some impact. But they came into that crisis in, in round numbers with four trillion reserves and they came out with three trillion, right? So I think they're looking at the situation now. The economy is bigger. Global markets are even bigger. Like maybe it'll cost, maybe it'll cost a trillion and a half or two trillion to, to have an impact on this occasion, right? And then, then do they be close to a sort of lower bound for what is a reasonable amount of reserves to have for a big economy like theirs? So I think they're quite reluctant to spend reserves to defend the currency. So the pattern that we're observing now is that they're trying to send signals to the market. They have these daily fixings every night, you know, 9.15 New York time, they come out with a fixing trying to guide the market, right? But it's a bit of a kind of a, you know, uh, trust me, trust me, we want the, the currency to be stronger, but we don't really want to back it up with hard, hard currency like we did in the old days. So last night they told the state, state banks to come in and sell some dollars. And the state banks probably have a couple hundred billion in capacity to do that. Brad Setz has done good estimates of that. We were tweeting together this morning just to compare notes. And so they have some ammunition there, but a couple hundred billion, it's not really that much. So I think it's going to be just used for smoothing purposes, right? So when they think the currency is moving too fast, when they think it's negative for overall market sentiment, they're going to try to slow down the move, you know, spend a couple billion here and there, slow the move. But it, it's kind of, it's not something that's a line in the sand. It's not something that changes the direction of the currency. You can see it in the price action very clearly last night. Like they intervened at 728, right? And then we dipped a little bit below and then we ended the session higher. And now the offshore market is, is way higher. So it's not something that changes the trend. It just creates a little bit of intraday volatility. Axis creating some nice intraday trading opportunities if you're into that kind of stuff, but it's not going to change the direction overall. And I think also there's a debate that is related to that now about, oh, is China going to defend the currency in a way where they'll have to sell a lot of treasuries? I think that was the case in, in 2015, 2016, but I think they, 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 they don't want to do a big amount this time. They've decided that they're going to try to, to, to keep the, the currency as smooth and stable as they can without spending a lot of reserves, which is not an easy thing to do, but that's what they're trying to do. And therefore, I don't think we're going to have enormous treasury sales coming out of China for, for this reason. There's going to be some, but the amounts are not going to be that big in the scheme of things. So I don't think it's a dominant force. 
And Michael, I think you're asking, do you ask about Japan as well? Just remind yeah, me what you want to do about Japan. I think there was a there was a period of time when not that long ago, but it seems like a long time ago, when we were focused on on monetary different monetary signals in Japan, right? Lifting the uh, lifting the yield curve limit on the under JGBs from half a percent to something higher, right? And and when there was that focus, there was some impact on the Chinese currency as well because they kind of trade together, right? But now we've kind of learned that okay. JGPs are actually moving only a tiny bit compared to what's going on globally, right? So rate differentials are not moving in a yen support directions. Yen, yen, like if you look at rate differentials, it's just like, it's obviously like a very naive to say, okay, you can trade currency space in one variable, but it's an important variable, right? And it's pretty remarkable, right? We have two-year rates just drifting significantly lower in China while US rates are going up in a very dramatic way, right? So rate differentials are moved out in a very, very pronounced way, quickly from 150 basis points to 300 basis points. So it's a very dramatic thing. It's a historical thing. And then obviously there's the the focus on, okay, what is happening in Japan with the long end of the yield curve? It's an interesting thing when you have, like it's a bit ironic what's going on in Japan in the sense that we have a historical shift in motion, right? We've had a long, long period of of quantitative easing in Japan. Some would argue that Japan invented quantitative easing in the early 2000s, right? And they've been buying bonds since then. And now they're exiting. The first tweak to the yield curve control was in December. The second tweak was a couple of weeks ago. And nevertheless, even though it seems like, oh, it's a dramatic thing, they're starting to do it. Really, the big surprise, I think, has been how orderly it's been, right? If you look at what's happening in the last couple of weeks, they lifted that ceiling on JGBs and JGBs are up from slightly below 50 basis point ceilings and now called 60 basis points, it's moved 10 basis points. And they didn't even have to, you know, the, the smoothing operations they do, they did two of them so far, but that's like two weeks ago since they did the last one. So it's actually a market-based equilibrium that is so orderly. But I think it has to do with the fact that when you've taken so many bonds out of the market over years and years and years, and you own such a big part of the market, like what's actually left in the market, combined with people pre-positioning and trying to be short if they can, means that actually yields end up adjusting pretty slowly. So I think this adjustment in the JGBs, because the market has been so distorted by incredible amounts of buying, is actually going to take, take longer. And that means that the impact on, on global markets is also going to be a drawn out process as opposed to, you know, one shock that comes in one day and we all cry about it. It's going to be, it's going to be a little bit lower, like more, many months, maybe many quarters before that adjustment fully plays out. So Reese hit the room here. Everybody, please make sure you follow Jens here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite platforms. By the way, no, no disagreements on anything you said. I, I, my focus has been on just the potential of sort of, I call it a global margin call, which I think would happen if you have any kind of reversal of the carry trade, which remains to be seen. How does oil's price movement factor into risks for Japan, but also China more broadly? I mean, Japan obviously has different dynamics as, as to import pretty much all of its oil. But play it out. Let's do some fair analysis. Oil spikes or oil collapses, what happens to 
Japan and China. Yeah, so from a basic, you know, trade balance perspective, like Japan is very sensitive to oil prices. Korea is extremely sensitive to oil prices. And China is also very sensitive to oil prices. Although they tend to do a good job of accumulating a lot of inventory when prices are low. As we've seen earlier this year, I think they accumulated quite a bit to create some buffers for themselves. And we've seen a bounce, right? So the sort of deflationary effect from low oil prices on global CPIs is reversing a little bit. But so far, the move is, it's not an enormous move. Like it might look big in a, in a two-month return space or three-month return space, but it's because we, we, we did go to very low levels, right? So from a long-term chart, we, we bounced from the bottom, but we haven't really gotten to levels where it, it's particularly concerning. I would also say, right, in Japan's case, they are restarting some nuclear power. So that's going to offset some of the import costs that they would otherwise have. So maybe the impact there is not going to be quite substantial. So like when I look at what's going on with inflation, right, we clearly have to pay attention to what's going on with commodities, right? And at a bounce in crude oil, we have some volatility in natural gas prices now, partly because of some strikes in, in Australia. At the same time, metals are kind of looks like they're turning lower, right? And, and metals are, are very closely linked to the, the Chinese cycle. As I mentioned, every time the stimulus opened China, a couple bounces a little bit, and now copper has retraced. So I think that's something that's relevant to the inflation picture overall. So I, I have to say, if I, if I sort of look at what's going on globally from a very big picture perspective, right? What is remarkable about these yield spikes that we've had is that in terms of the macro news we're getting, right, we've had lower CPI numbers, two months, pretty convincingly so on the core readings in the US. I like to do always a global scanning of everything that's going on, try to absorb as much data as I can. If I look at global core inflation, right, we've reset them really notably lower over the last few months. Maybe I'll, I'll send a tweet around just to show the data that I'm looking at. So there's something positive going on there. And I think commodities, yeah, oil prices are a bit higher, but the overall commodity space in year year terms still doesn't look problematic to me. So what really stands out as being very interesting and something that not a lot of people would have thought is that, yeah, we've had this breakout in yields in the US and Europe, despite the inflation news being better. So I think that tells you that there's something on the flow front that's different. Japan is a part of it. And it's something we have to respect, but we also have to weigh, okay, those flows forces that are pushing yields higher now, they're going to continue to dominate something on inflation that looks like it's better. So I think that's one of the most important questions right now. So certainly when you have a situation like the one we are seeing where the macro picture is deteriorating fast and and essentially, the, the typical policy levers perhaps look kind of impotent compared to what would normally be the case. Then you, you can worry that they're going to resort to other types of action, right? Uh, it is well known around the world that dictatorships typically sustain themselves by creating an external conflict, right? So certainly the military conflict, I think if the situation in China domestically is very bad, like all else equal, the probability of military conflict goes up. I'm not saying it's high, but it's, it, it will be going up for that reason. So that's something to worry about. In terms of the economics itself, like 
I think about it as a slow motion crisis in the sense that the, the state banks will not be allowed to fail. And therefore, the sort of typical, you know, cat- what you would call it, catastrophic market collapse that can, comes out of bank failures, as we, as we experienced in the, in the U.S., even with small banks in March, right? It's not going to go through that channel. It's going to go through, you know, death by a thousand cuts, shadow banking, real estate, all those types of things. And I think spillover to global markets will happen through the real channel. So it is a bit different, but I'm worried that because you're not seeing like the bank headline, you don't see ICBC down, you know, 15% in a day. Because you're not seeing that, there's a lot of people who kind of fall asleep a little bit. And that's kind of what makes this interesting. It's such a big part of the global economy. It's such an important, important part of the global economy, right? And now it seems like for one reason or another, there's a little bit less focus on it than there used to be. So that's, that's quite interesting from a risk management perspective. Yeah. Well, so if we can be a little bit nerdy, right? So I think if you think about the balance of, of, of payments in, in China, it's something I spent a ridiculous amount of, of time studying over the years, right? And when they had the last problem, they essentially tried to close all the holes in the balance of payments, right? So all the, the different sources of leakage, they tried to put controls in place, stop them. Like just very simple example, right? In, in 2015, 16, there was a big wave of outbound foreign direct investment. Companies wanted to buy hotels, insurance companies, and so forth around the world as a kind of corporate capital flight. And they shut that down. But we're coming into this balance of payments problem, crisis that's going on now here in 2023, and they already closed the obvious holes. So we have weakness in the currency after they tried to close all the holes. That's very interesting. So I've been very focused on a lot of the, the flows that are coming in or not coming in that they cannot control, right? The foreign direct investment used to be, you know, $75 billion per quarter, $300 billion annualized. The last number was five. So a big, big shift there. And that is something that they cannot control. They cannot force multinational companies to invest, right? So the, the weakness in the balance of payments is coming from forces they have a very hard time controlling. And I think that is what makes me pretty confident that there's asymmetry around this currency, right? Asymmetry to the downside. And the policy tools they have available to themselves are not that powerful. They don't want to intervene. They can't raise rates. Like, what are they going to do? It's not so easy to control the currency of this size. So they can try it, but doesn't mean they're going to get it where they want. And I think there's a little bit too much respect about the PBOC can always get it where they want. Historically, that's been true. But I think they've played so many of their cards already that it's becoming less and less true. So that's, that's something to keep in mind. I just tweeted out that global core inflation chart that I referenced, right? It's turning globally, right? So it's very interesting. We have that breakout in global bond yields with this pattern globally. So it really shows the flows in play. We have a company called Exante Data, right? Where we track capital flows in intense detail, right? So the reason we do that is that everybody has the payroll release on their Bloomberg screen, other places, right? But a lot of people are not that familiar with what's actually going on with the capital flows. So I think capital flows overall is really important. And then I would say like the other technology we're 
developed at the market reader technology, right? Where that is a, is a robot piece of software, an engine that scans all markets simultaneously and detects, okay, here's the epicenter of something that is worth paying attention to, being at the you know, Silicon Valley Bank cracking, and then instantly explaining what's going on. So I think having a very global focus, being able to pay attention to a lot of assets at the same time is something that's helped me through my career. So I would encourage people to have a broad focus as opposed to a narrow focus. Otherwise, uh, you'll, you'll like, world is so interconnected and complex that you're going to miss things if you don't have a very broad focus. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I wonder, again, going back to that point about, yeah, it's a, inflation is falling globally, the yields are, are breaking out. I wonder if, if there's something maybe a little bit scarier to that, not to be overly dramatic, but, you know, sort of the idea that the bond vigilantes are out there, if you want to call them that, when it comes to sovereign liabilities, sort of the the public sector crisis, which you saw a glimpse of with gilts, right? And, you know, is there, is there something to the idea that just we're at this kind of bigger dynamic, bigger phase that the bond market maybe is warning, worrying about? Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense that we have a lot of focus on bond supply, right? Because we're so late in this big credit cycle where we we got away with issuing an incredible amount of debt because interest rates were zero. It didn't really matter how much debt you had. Your debt service was still very manageable. So this is this is uh, all different now where we have some inflation irrespective of whether it's come down a little bit in the last couple of months. And uh, I think it's also going to be assassinating in currency markets over the next couple of years. It's not going to change from one day to the other how, how markets trade this. But we're entering into a new regime where we're going to figure out which countries have hard currencies and what countries have soft currencies. And what I mean by that is that as the governments roll their debt into higher yielding debt, so being at the U.S. government, U.K. government, others, takes time to roll the debt, right? But eventually it'll be rolled. Then they face a much higher interest rate burden, and it's going to have all kinds of implications for how fiscal dynamics will play out, what kind of discretionary spending is, is possible. And then the monetary authorities, they have varying degrees of independence, varying degrees of political influence. They will have to decide, okay, what is our priority? Do we stick to sort of a mathematical inflation target? Or do we also pay attention to whether, you know, our fiscal brothers and sisters, policymakers are, are in trouble? And I think you'll definitely see countries where the monetary authorities have a hard time really being solely focused on inflation. And therefore, there's going to be ending, there's going to be countries that end up having lower real interest rates as a consequence. And those which I would see that's the definition of a soft currency, those currencies should then be on a depreciating path. And what's interesting right now is that there's actually some countries like Sweden, Norway, examples, right, where they don't have a lot of debt, 
like this problem I just outlined is not a big deal for them, but they've actually had very weak currencies recently over the last couple of years, partly because the monetary policymakers have just been very slow to respond to the inflation pressures, but they actually could respond and be conservative if they wanted to without running into that fiscal constraint that others might have. So I think at some point, if you're going to make investments, it's going to become very important whether you make investments in in a country where they can support a hard currency. Like it used to be the Bundesbank that had that reputation. Now it's probably the the Swiss that have that reputation, right? But the, it's almost like you want to scan around the world and figure out who is who. And it's going to potentially make a big difference to the returns you. So like I said, when you, when you say hard currency, my mind also goes to, to gold and you, know, you can argue Bitcoin. Is there anything to the idea that yeah, from like an investment portfolio construction perspective, those become more important as in quotes hedges or you know, is it going to be exactly what you just said with more just going to different countries in terms of the hard currency dynamic? Yeah, I think, I think they're going to feature in that kind of analysis, right? So we, we haven't really gotten to that point yet. Like you can argue in, in March when, when the regional banks were under severe pressure that, okay, Bitcoin was viewed as, okay, this is the, the alternative to a traditional banking system and so forth. And we had a bit of support, not, not that pronounced. And then there's the issue of, okay, when a, when a central bank is going to be forced to, you know, compromise on the inflation target because there's a fiscal dimension that is equally important, more important. We haven't really gotten to there yet. Like the Fed, been pretty, pretty aggressive, right? Like we're above 5% interest rates. If you went back and asked people, okay, what's the highest Fed rates are going to get to in this cycle? They would have said two or three, and we're now above five, right? So Fed has, has, has done a fair bit. The same thing in Europe, like what people have, you asked a couple of years ago, what's the highest the ECB are going to get rates? So they would have said one and a half, two, right? And now we're going, going to four above. So they've been pretty conservative and that's, that's been, the situation we have been witnessing over the last 12 months, they were behind, they're getting ahead, inflation expectations under control. But the real test will be when the debt has been rolled, it goes into the fiscal accounts, the debt service payments are high, can they then stick to it or are they going to start compromising? And that's when the gold trade could be very interesting and perhaps the crypto trades too. Yeah, no, I think I think that's well articulated. I, I wonder if you think that we're, maybe in a cycle of, weird way of saying it, but a, a cycle of downgrades across the globe. I mean, yeah, we, you're obviously starting to see it with Moody's and, you know, the Fitch warning today, but I'm going to make the assumption that we're going to see more of these types of downgrades, not just in the U.S. Yeah, so I, I, maybe I am, maybe I was answering too quickly in the sense that you you already have economies around the world, right, where there's no trust at all in the currency, right? So Argentina just had another implosion of their currency this week. The Russian ruble has been going down, you know, 20, 30% last couple of months. Obviously, they have some, let's call it spe- special issues, special issues going on, like Africa, African currencies, Turkish lira and so forth. Very severe currency problems, right? So th- really what we want to think about is that those, are those type of problems going to migrate to the big currencies? That's what we are talking about. And uh, yeah, I think next year, next year will be the test for that. So bring you down to the, the portfolio and exactly what you said at the start of the conversation around managing risk. So not financial advice, but 
you know, if you're looking at the the all the different scenarios and all the different types of tail risks, whether they're slow or fast, what makes the most sense to do? Is it one of the things where you'd say, you know what, add more cash, maybe just lower your beta in an equity portfolio? You know, what what actions do you think make the most sense for what could be to come? Well, if you're able to pick the places where they have hard currencies and you can pick the point when you reach the um, the turning point in the, in the hiking cycle, then clearly there's going to be some bond trades that are going to be very, very attractive bond trades. I can see it. I speak to institutional investors around the world all the time, right? I'm based in New York. I was in London last week, had some good conversations with big real money players in addition to hedge funds, right? But the real money players are the ones that are interesting in that they, are, they have big yeah, structural holdings and fixed incomes. And I remember we did, we did a we did some cocktails almost exactly a year ago in in New York. It was like we we're just ready to to be outside on a roof in New York, and we had a lot of of, of real money participants a, a year ago. And when we kind of asked them what do you have in the portfolio, the answer was pretty much T bills. Right, that was a year ago. And then we, in terms of this, is kind of just an anecdote. So I'm not not saying go on and less based on anecdote. Right, but we can see the same in our data. We can see that when we track, you know, the duration exposure of U.S. bond funds, and we track that every every month with all the information we can get our hands on, right? That they have taken a lot more duration exposure, and they're getting ready to do that trade. They may have been too early in the trade, but it is their business, global bond funds, to to get into the bonds at the right time and ride those appreciation trends when they happen. And that's what they're all looking to do. And obviously, if you can find find the right timing and find, obviously, don't have to do it without currency hedge. But if you want to take the currency exposure, then obviously you want to pick one where it's a conservative central bank that's going to really get inflation down. That way you get the juice both on the currency return and the normal bond yields actually being able to go lower and give you more capital appreciation over time from that source too, if you get the right entry point. Yeah, and for those who want to track more of your work, I, I, I know you mentioned Market Reader a bit, but maybe just talk about some of the things that are kind of in the pipeline as far as that goes and how people can, can track some of the assets you put out. So we have we have two companies that because we, it's been pretty expensive to build the Market Reader technology, so we had to fund it in a separate company. So it's called Market Reader Inc. So there's a separate there's a separate Twitter handle for that. I definitely encourage you to follow that. So Market Reader Inc. is the handle, but if you just type in Market Reader, it should pop up. I'll, I can tweet it out now as well there's, if there's any doubt. So uh, that company is really meant to help everybody. So I've, in my career, I've had a lot of focus on, you know, helping macro hedge funds, helping, you know, CIOs from big investment managers. But the Market Reader technology really is built for everybody in the sense that it it tells you what's moving in the market. It, it knows what is a normal move for each asset, right? So it's not going to give you NVIDIA or Tesla every day. Like it's in a volatility adjustment space, it shows you the interesting moves, right? And then it explains why they're happening in real time. And it gives you a fantastic way to just absorb what's going on based on how the market is reading what's going on and position you to 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 make active decisions in a timely way. So I've definitely encouraged everybody to, to follow that handle market reader, Inc. on Twitter. And we are starting to allow our first users on the platform. We're still trying to figure out like how we handle institutional users and that people who are private, I don't know what the right term for it, some people call them retail, but that, that is not always accurate. There's some private investors that are very, very capable and, and extremely informed. 
right? So we want to help all of those. So it could really be a piece of software that could help a lot of people. And I, I would certainly say like when Silicon Valley Bank cracked that Wednesday night back in, in March, it was pretty handy to get an alert. Okay, here's something that you need to pay attention to. And it took really the market, you know, almost 24 hours before it had digested that news, right? And having that type of lead is something that could be extremely valuable from a risk management perspective. So that's one use case. There's a lot of also all the use cases. If if we essentially are able to understand the price action in the market and attach an explanation to it, this is something that can generate really the next generation of financial news and insight in the sense that if you have parsed everything that's going on in the market in that way, you will have a content stream that you can do other things with. You can say, okay, tell me what has happened in semiconductors in the last two weeks. And you can actually extract all the insights that we have generated over that time period instead of just having, you know, a very, very noisy news feed that you have to manually scan through. So this product will have different phases attached to it. And at some point, we will have like a much more flexible way of summarizing across the assets that you are interested in. We already have watch lists in the system, right? But at some point, we will also be agnostic about the time horizon. So if you are somebody like to look at the market every Saturday morning and understand what happened in the previous week, that's one use case. If you're somebody who really just want to have an overview of what happened in your portfolio at the end of the month, at the end of the quarter, we can really extract an incredible amount of information from the market and summarize it with very little noise. So it gives you some different opportunities to essentially create totally new products. So that's something we're very excited about. It would sort of be nice to have a product that has no competition. So that's in a way the goal with this. Everybody, please make sure you check that out and make sure you follow Jens as mentioned. Uh, I will again have this as a podcast under Lead Lag Live and appreciate everybody joining. Thank you, Jens. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.